Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Victoria Pelletier. No stranger to the corporate boardroom, by the time Victoria was 24 years old, she was the CEO of a multinational corporation. Now with 20 plus years in corporate leadership, Victoria has held senior roles in companies such as Accenture, IBM and American Express. Hi Victoria, good morning. I'm so glad to have you here with us at Woman to Woman podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So for our listeners, let's start with what you do today. Today, I'm a corporate executive. I work for Accenture and I lead one of their industry portfolios. I guess everybody knows Accenture. Growing up, what was the plan? Did everything go according to plan? No, Divya, it, um, it's very far off what I thought I was planning on doing. Uh, so I mean, Accenture, actually, I do find not everyone knows who Accenture is, even though we're massive with 725,000 employees, like consulting tech outsourcing company. My goal, however, since I was probably 11 was to be a lawyer. I think my mother had me sit down and watch far too much LA law that will totally date, date me. But, you know, watching that and I just, I saw them, you know, the, my capacity for debate and challenging whatnot was what I wanted to do. However, I followed my passion. And so while I was in university, I worked for a bank and got promoted through um, quite quickly into leadership roles. And I realized how much I loved leading people, being involved in strategy and how we were going to go to market. And so what I thought was going to be a year off to pursue that, you know, promotion opportunity they'd give um, given me before going to law school was not to be. Uh, that one year before I went to law school was never to be. And I stayed in the corporate world for the rest of my career to this point. But it's interesting. You thought you would make a good lawyer. So your plan was to go to law school initially, at least. Yeah, I just, I, I knew that um, it was a path I wanted to be on. I remember my my mom saying to me at one point, she said, Tori, you need to do better than us. And she meant socioeconomically. So they, my, my parents had adopted me. My mom was a secretary and my dad a school janitor. And so for her, she just wanted so much more. She actually didn't want me to go necessarily down the path of being a lawyer. I just I thought that that would be great for me, given that I, you know, I think it was, again, the experience of what I saw on television, but then even throughout my teenage years, it was much more around understanding the opportunity. And I wanted to be in corporate law. Times I've vacillated between that and criminal, but I thought corporate law, I knew I enjoyed the corporate world. I was part of the debate team when I was in, um, in high school. And so the ability to stand in front of this audience. And by the way, I was an actor as well. So I saw it as, you know, the ability to have incredible thought and dialogue and challenge in front of an audience and convince them and sway them, you know, to the side of what was hopefully going to be that good side of that, even though it was corporate. So you're originally from Canada. How was childhood and how, how did that transition happen for you to move over to US? At what point did all of that come about? I'm passionate about diversity and inclusion. And I often say, however, I recognize the privilege I have of being born uh, in Canada to a country that's incredibly multicultural with a really great social, you know, and liberal background. So, uh, you know, around and really accepting of immigrants. So I'm fortunate to have been born there. I'm a very proud Canadian who lives in the US. But the reason for me for moving, so I grew up in, after my parents adopted me, I was four. Uh, they um, When they adopted me, they moved across the country. So I grew up in Western Canada, but the bank I worked for while I was in university relocated me across the country to Toronto, biggest city in Canada. And while I stayed in the corporate world, I realized that a lot of the opportunity from a size and scale perspective existed in the U.S., 
I was fortunate to be given my first executive role at 24, which was a quite a large stretch for me at that time as the COO for a large business process outsourcing or BPO company. Many of our clients were in the U.S. and some of our teams were in the U.S., although the majority were off, offshore. That's a big tenant for, for outsourcing. And so as I, I gained more and more experience at that point, I later got offered the opportunity to go directly move to the U.S. for a role as the company I worked for was acquiring new companies. And I chose to stay here. I've gone back and forth between primarily Toronto and New York, although I now live in South Florida. Uh, and it was, again, much about size and scale. I was in one role where I remember I was leading only half of the US portfolio for the company I worked for, which was $4 billion. And I moved back to Canada for personal reasons. And I led all of a particular division and it was $250 million. So again, size, scale opportunities, particularly when you're in a corporate environment, exist here greatly in the US. So work-wise, how is it different? Like I know working in two different countries, you kind of see the difference, right? Um, just the corporate culture, the way people work. And I know we're just neighbors. It's, it's right, <laughs> pretty much very close for some of us, but still there is a huge difference. What do you think was that main difference? There's large differences even across Canada and I see across the US. So it really comes down to the culture and the lived experience you had. But on the whole, what I would say, and I wasn't sure whether I should be flattered or insulted by this. But the first time I got relocated to the US was in 2006. And there were a few Canadians, we actually were, I was working for a UK headquartered company, and we acquired a number of US companies and I got moved. And one of my colleagues said to me, you're like the least Canadian of the bunch. And, and I was like, what does that mean? And I, for me, what that meant, I'm, I'm actually very much more like a stereo, stereotypical New Yorker, fast pace, I tend to be more direct, um, and, and and driven, whereas Canadians are generally, and it's, this is a stereotype, so any Canadians listening, please don't be offended, but like self-deprecating, like we apologize for everything, much more sensitive generally, culturally as well. Again, just because of the acceptance versus tolerance that you'll see and that that is a big difference. And so the politics are different, you know, and things like that. So how we choose to connect and engage. And so when I'm working with Canadian clients and teams, there's they get completely offended, as you said, neighbors, but to just be lumped into this category, you know, as like Americans to the to the north, right? Like it's just another state. And so that tends to offend again, just because we were even more concerned about doing business with our fellow neighbors. And so those are the just the nuances. And I've seen for people who've moved from other countries around the world that come either into Canada or the US that there, there's often a, an, an adjustment in terms of stylistically how they need to show up and engage with others at work. So you mentioned you got into leadership role very young in your life. So did you have mentors or sponsors that really helped you get ahead or get the kind of roles that would help you get those leadership positions? So I started working at age 11 in a hair salon, not just babysitting my neighbors, uh, children. At 14, I worked for a shoe store and became their assistant manager. Um, so, I mean, I was, you know, leading people who were two decades or more older than me. And then by 16 and 17 years old, while I was in university at that point, I'd been moved into leadership roles. And so I've been doing it for a very long time. It really ages me when I think around how long I've been doing it for. Uh, although I've had some really I have had some great sponsors along the way. So people, in fact, some of the career moves I've made have been because prior leaders of mine have pulled me along as they've made some changes and advocated for me. But when it comes to mentors, sadly, not many. In fact, it, my 
like observation of others have actually caused me to generally say like, those are people that I aspire to be nothing like just, they didn't show up with the right kind of leadership traits, ethics, values that I um, aspired to. So I'd say that there's been mentors in the way in that I've learned how differently I want to operate from others. And yes, sponsors who've helped advocate for me or move me along. But a lot of that has actually been much more self-directed and intentionally driven by myself than others. However, it is something I definitely recommend as I'm coaching people is to make sure that they find, you know, coaches for themselves that will help them be better in their current roles, mentors, and sponsors. Again, those that advocate for you when you're not in the room. It is so essential. Are there certain ways you find these people that really have a genuine interest in you and your success? I use the word intention a lot. And so I think the mentorship for me is much more intentional for you as the owner of your own career to find who they are. And a lot of people think it needs to be this hierarchical leader. So someone who's more senior than you. And I do think that helps because you learn the lessons from those who come before you and had, you know, the the same experiences you're now going to as you rise in your career. But I also think you need to look laterally. So I, you know, see many people who, you know, might sit in a functional role, whether it's, let's say finance, and then they want to move into an operational or a client facing role. So finding someone who's either made that shift or someone who's in that other role to talk about what success looks like. So that's where I talk about intentionality. So being really reflective of your career and your career aspirations, and potentially your, the the things you have to learn and going out and finding those mentors. Whereas sponsorship for me, there's intentionality around a desire to find a sponsor. But for me, for me to sponsor someone, I, I need to know the individual. I need to understand their work ethic and their values so that I can choose to advocate for them when they're not there. So as much as there's someone who might want me to be their sponsor, for me as the sponsor, I'm choosing those individuals because they have great potential. And as I said, they've got performance or aptitude. And again, alignment to purpose and values in, in the roles I might be looking to advocate for them for. So for some of our listeners, are there certain kind of roles or jobs that you recommend that really help you um, get ahead as a leader later on in life? The One of the most difficult leadership roles is I think that first level line manager or supervisor. So my career, while, while I worked in you know banking and university, I was in their contact center and moved in within six months into a leadership role. And those are, first of all, large number. I mean, we're it was 12 to at some point 20, that's far too many people, direct reports to have to do any one of them justice in terms of being able to coach and develop them. But that taught me a lot about leadership. I'm trying to manage performance, operations and you know the objectives of the company in terms of team's performance but then learning how to lead a team and again in that environment it was so fast paced so for me it it taught me a lot about leadership and it was a a challenge so that first line but it's so much sits on that first line level manager quite frankly but then also i think there's some other roles that you know, when I when I took that COO role at 24, I had come from almost exclusively an operations background to now leading all functional areas of the organization except for finance. And so for me, I, I actually attribute that to setting me up for success long-term career-wise because I learned other parts of the business, although with leaders who were 
who were the experts in those fields. So I surrounded myself with a great, great people. So as I'm, you know, talk to your listeners or as I'm coaching to, you know, people around what does that look like and how do you get set up for success as a leader? It's that first step, number one, and then two, leaning into discomfort of new areas to help grow as, as a leader holistically, not only in terms of knowledge of the business, um, but how to lead people in different areas as well. Along the way, you have done different kinds of job. You have seen different kind of functions. Have you ever been tempted or have you ever thought that I should change my career at this point? Yes, I have. And I've made career shifts multiple times. And some of it's been by circumstance. I've been a part of it like 18 mergers or acquisitions or some kind of related transaction. And that's caused me to be reflective about what pivot I might make or make a decision not to go forward with, in some cases, companies that were acquired. And I made a decision not to move forward. And then in others, I've sat down and really been self-reflective around what brings me joy? What do I, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Japanese concept of Ikigai. And this is, it's around what, like, what are you good at? What can you get paid for? What do you enjoy doing? And um, and so there's this great sort of wheel that d- depicts it. You know, so your listeners can go and look for that. And so I've used that as an opportunity. I remember coming into an organization once, and it was similar to the one I'd been at previously. And I was like, I think I was a few months in, and I was like, oh, like I'm really not enjoying this. And I said, well, the common denominator here is me. So let me see what is it about the last organization and this organization. And it was just fundamentally around how they organized and operated. And I realized it wasn't really aligned to me. There was a lot of individual contributor expectations in the roles, even though I sat in a very senior leadership role. And as a high percentage of my work, I, I don't enjoy that. And so I've been able to say, no, like I, I'm a general manager at heart, which means I want to be a part of strategy, the way we go to market, but operations and delivery sells, I'm in B2B, right? So it sells ongoing work. And so for me, I've been able to say, no, I'm going to shift. This is just not aligned. I know what success looks like here, but it's not aligned to what makes brings me joy and makes me happy in my work. And so that's when I've said, okay, I'm going to need to be really intentional and then about making a shift going forward. And I would encourage your listeners to do that and go through that exercise. So network plays a huge part, right? Whether we're just thinking about moving or trying to find the right expertise to just learn a few things. How have you worked that part and what has really helped you? Yeah, I attribute my career success to a few things. And so performance and maintaining skills and relevancy is a big part of that. But the other one I spend a lot of time talking about is around my personal brand and the network I build around that and what people know me for. And it was not natural for me. Again, that first role where I went from running primarily internal operations to being client facing, having to sit in a room and make small talk and engage with people to sell business was again, not natural. But I recognized people do business with people they like, they trust, and therefore they want to do business with. So I was going to have to lean into that discomfort. I was going to need to network and engage with people, not only to hire people, attract people into the organization I work for, but to help sell new business. Um, And I just then took that from a necessity in the business I was in at that point to recognizing the great success that came with that. Now for me, a big part of whom I'm known 
for is about being a connector to other people and doing it from a place of generosity and not greed. Yes. Do I hope at some point that will translate into more business sales or something, a new role opportunity for me? Yes. But I think we need to do a few things as it relates to the network. One is there's this strategic intentionality. So be really mindful. Are you looking for a new role? Are you looking for new clients? And so figuring out who to target to start to build those relationships with, but also letting it happen organically. I'm a, a big believer that there's not two networks, right? One for personal, one for professional, like it's all just life. And let's engage with people that come into our lives and build authentic connections with them. So that when there's an opportunity, again, whether personally or professionally, you've already established that relationship and you've done it when you don't need it. So it's there for you when you do. Let's talk a little bit about uh, children. So you have two kids and you had to make some tough decisions for them. How did you manage that? Because I guess as women, we struggle to give equal importance to work, our life, the kids. How did you manage that? Yeah. You know, I think People often ask the question, like, how do you manage it all? Whether it's an executive career, I do public speaking, I sit on boards, wife, mother, all these sorts of things. And so, you know, the response is, I, I do think you can have it all, but not necessarily all at the same time and recognize that there are trade-offs you're going to make at some point, but hopefully make the right ones for the right reasons at the right times. And so for me, I recognize I was a young mother by choice, not accident. And so I had my son maybe two months before my 24th birthday. And I took that COO role three months after I gave birth. And, you know, I recognize I'm a young mother. I'm going to have a long, long runway once I even become an empty nester. I, there's moments where I felt like I was being selfish for prioritizing my career and myself as well when I missed soccer games, hockey games, and those sorts of things. And when my daughter, who's my younger of my two children, when she was two, I, I'd been relocated to New York, but I was traveling so extensively that I ended up keeping my family back in Toronto and I traveled. I spent 221 days on the road the year she was two. So I missed a lot. I'd come home on the weekend and she hit, you know, was now speaking in full sentences. It, like it seemed like from, you know, the, when I, when I left on Sunday night or Monday morning. And so I, at times I felt guilty, but I made a choice to to at one point change roles because there was no end in sight for that travel and that was not sustainable. So I made a choice to take a different role, even though I really enjoyed it, one. And then there was a second time in, in my life where I'll, I, I got divorced when my children were um, five and nine and we had a great relationship and had shared custody. And when my ex passed away from cancer four years later, I was working for American Express in New York in a role I loved, but I traveled about 15 days a month to 18 business days a month. And so I had to assess, do I move my children to New York, which doesn't solve actually for all of my travel problems? Do I find a different, do I try with Amex, which is, was the first choice? Do I try and find a different role with less travel? Maybe something be back in Canada, you know, or do I have to make a shift altogether? And ultimately I left a role I'd I loved. I'd been there only for about 18 months uh, and went back to a Toronto-based role where my children had a community around them who would support them after a loss of a parent, a role that I wasn't quite as excited about, but it had me traveling 10% of the time. So when you ask this question, Divya, for me, it's like you're going to make trade-offs at certain point, again, because it's the right time and place for your family, for your career. And hopefully at the end of it, you recognize that, you know, you, you, you did that ultimately for the good of yourself and your family, and they'll respect you for it. If you had to go back and change one thing in your life, what would that be? I live with a philosophy of no regrets. So I try not 
to, I, I recognize that there's things, had I done it differently, might've played out, um, you know, a different way, but I think it's all contributed to who, who I am. I, I didn't, sh- I shared that I was adopted, but what I didn't share is I was born to a drug addicted teenage mother who was extremely abusive to me. And that caused me to be a little hardened and, you know, build a wall around me to protect myself. I took that into the business world in part because of a little bit of imposter syndrome, but that role at 24, I was the youngest by two decades and I was the only woman around the table. I felt I didn't belong. And so I I, had, I wore a mask, if you will, I think at, at work. The, the thing I would do differently, and it didn't come to me until I was in my mid thirties, was to learn how to be much more authentic and, you know, to use Brene Brown's words, vulnerable, to build really deep connections with people. You know, I, I had some unfortunate nicknames like the Iron Maiden. Now I was performance managing and like making, doing restructure, but no one really knew who I was. So if I had to say doing something differently, I would have learned much sooner that it was okay to tell my story, to talk about my lived experience, to talk about my why and why I showed up and why I was so driven and to be comfortable sharing a little bit more of that vulnerability. I think I would have had significantly better, particularly work relationships, but some of that translated into personal as well. What has been your biggest failure or perceived failure in your view? And what have you really learned from that? I was disappointed that my first marriage didn't work out. And so for me, I viewed that as a failure, but at the same time, I viewed that as a massive step forward for me as an individual taking a a very bold move to do what I thought was going to be the right thing for myself. And it created significant turmoil for my children. And I, I say I live with no regrets, but that's one I kind of harbored for a long time, given what you know they experienced through divorce. And then unfortunately, subsequently, several years later, the death of my ex. For me, I'll say that was a, it was a failure and I don't like to fail. But at the same time, I recognize that I had 11 great years together and two children that are a great part of my success and who I am. And I learned a lot, you know, who I was at 22 when I met my ex was very different than at 33, I made the decision to leave. So failure on some parts, but still an incredible like life lesson for me. We as women struggle a lot making the decision where you have to put yourself first. What would you advise young women? How should they look at this? I absolutely think it's critical to put yourself at the forefront. It doesn't mean again, at some point you're putting others in front of you for a reason. Um, and when you be, get into relationships, there's a compromise and you make you make in those relationships to your partner for it to be successful. But at the end of the day, we have ourselves, right? So I use the example of what I chose and the hours I worked and the travel I did when my children were young. You know, I'm now almost an empty nester. You know, my daughter's 18, my son's 22. And and I say almost an empty nester because my daughter is gone for the summer um, and now for the next couple of months. So I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself. But had I not prioritized myself, I think I would have been a little bit further back in my career, but also prioritizing myself in terms of, you know, the needs again in the relationships I've had, even at, and at work, you know, the ability to say this doesn't bring me joy and learn how to say no, learn how to delegate or outsource um, to make sure that I can show up and I I am healthy from a mental perspective, from a physical perspective. I think 
far too many women, you know, put everyone else first and lose themselves a little bit and 10 or 15 or 20 years later, look back and do live with regret. And so doing it, learning, as you said, it's a mindset now, I think can significantly help, you know, in future. So along the way, have you ever faced perceptions that are really attributed to women? And how have you overcome those challenges? Yeah, I most definitely have. And it's part of the reason why I'm such a staunch like diversity and inclusion, um, like advocate and, and leader. And I've been, you know, given, as I said, nicknames, some of them I'll say were because of me showing up in a certain way with masks, etc. But you know, to hear that, you know, I'm aggressive, versus assertive, because I show up in a boardroom, and I'm confident you know, and delivering a message and not being spoken over in the room. And so to be labeled the B word or other words because of that, which is like applauded in my male counterparts has happened many, many times. So I, you know, learned a big part of how do I, how do I help other women, you know, within the environments, learn to have their voice, learn to show up and act differently. And sometimes that's creating the time and space for other women in the room and also having conversations with, you know, male colleagues or different, it, some of it's been cult cultural differences as well as I've worked all around the world to recognize again that, you know, it's, it's a different place, you know, here, you know, in North America, et cetera. And so, yes, I've, I've dealt with it many times. I try and always come from a place of understanding. Again, what's the lived experience culturally? Where has this person come from? To try and give them a little bit of, again, understanding before I then have a conversation around how this has impacted me or it's impacting my colleagues. And it's sad, but it still happens to this day. And um, whether it's pay equity or, you know, the number of women, you know, in leadership, there's still such a long way to go. That is very true. And then just looking back, right, are there certain kind of mistakes that we women do in our career, in our day-to-day -day lives that looking back, you think there are certain things that we should stay away from? We apologize a lot more than men do for things that we have no control over. Anything um, that really come to your mind where you kind of cringe and say, gosh, why do we do that? Many things. We've already talked about some not prioritizing ourselves at certain points. You know, if there's working mothers, the message is we are in a partnership together. So we're going to share household duties, you know, childbearing duties, period. And so I think there's often not standing up for, you know, equality in our personal lives, even that then have an impact on us professionally to, as you said, being apologetic for things that aren't in our control. I think even it comes in our vernacular sometimes in the workplace, because we're trying to be, we're empathetic naturally. And so, but it comes across that way, which sort of puts us on our back foot. There's data that supports that women don't apply for promotion uh, or new roles unless they meet like nine or 10 out of the 10 skills criteria that are listed where men do it at five or six, right? Like we don't ask for what we want, what we've earned, or even for our value. So like leaning in and getting really comfortable with some of those things, which might not naturally be as comfortable in our DNA. And so trying to learn to do that as early as possible. I, I talk a lot about leaning into this discomfort because again, culturally, you know, many women are not raised, you know, to do some of these things. <laughs> so you are a big DEI advocate. How have you managed all of these very demanding aspects and what does really DEI mean for you? So 
how have I managed all these aspects? First of all, I, I have this phrase where there's conviction, there's capacity. So, you know, I've set my mind to, I want to achieve this. I want to achieve that. And I find a way, and it means in being incredibly disciplined. And for things for me, that's also, I'm a fitness fanatic. I work out in the morning. So I block my calendar. So no one's booking me for really early, early meeting so that I can get my workout in and come home and get, you know, showered and changed and ready. So that where there's conviction, there's capacity. I'm not, you know, there's the, even for those that want to build a side hustle or have this passion, you know, there's the nine to five, no one really works nine to five, but I, but I'll say, you know, there's a nine to five, but then there's the five to nine. That's the time where you can start to invest in, in doing other things that bring you joy. And then on the second question around diversity, equity, and inclusion, I was passionate about it, as I said, because I'm, I was used to being one of the only. So whether it's the youngest, the woman, I'm part of the LGBT community. You know, I came out as bisexual in my teens and my first marriage was actually to a woman. I'm now married to a man. And so I was passionate about it because of my personal experience. But I also realized that diverse and inclusive workplaces are quite frankly, just better for business, right? The ability for people to show up as their authentic selves, bring their lived experience to, and, and not just lived experience in terms of different cultures, religious, sexualities, all of those pieces. I'm also talking about work experience. You know, you worked in a different country, you worked in a different functional area, Having that diversity of thought and experience around the table generally creates much more innovation in a workplace, higher productivity because people feel engaged and want to be a part of it. And so for me, what was a result of my personal experience and recognizing that it worked well for the business I was in now has just become broad brush for everything I do and speaking up for the intentionality we need to have in building diverse cultures and ones that are inclusive. So this creating a sense of belonging. So you can hire X number of like women or, you know, underrepresented minorities, but if you're then not creating the right environment for them, they're just going to exit out the back door as quickly as you bring them in the front. That is so important. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. So thank you for putting that out in the absolutely amazing words, because it really <laughs> conveys what it needs to be. Now talking about your early twenties, so you were actor. <laughs> yes. So the funny thing is, um, my mom, um, as I said, I was adopted and I hit my height. I'm not like crazy tall. I'm five foot eight, but I hit this height by the time I was 11. So they didn't know. So my, it started because my mom put me in acting. I was also quite shy and introverted. Uh, I, so I grew into my extroversion that you see now. And so she got me involved in modeling, which led its way into doing some commercials and acting. So then when I was in um, high school, I took acting. Part of the reason I chose to do it was it was a great way to show up. I was comfortable on stage. I would never have done public speaking back then because that was me, me as me, but me performing and being someone else on stage. And that's what got, got me comfortable. And I think what I can you know, lean into now as it relates to the public speaking that I, I work, I do and I work and being in front of large audiences. But it was a great experience for me. Uh, the opportunity, as I said, to, you know, put on different personas and masks in front of an audience, probably what helped me kind of had to get much more comfortable with who I was. And I'd taken the bits and pieces from these characters I'd played and recognized some similarities and as well as differences. So I, I loved it. In fact, I bought the casting agency that represented me. And then when I got relocated, sadly I had to sell it. And I, I always thought I was going to get back into it, but then career and children. And so I never went back to it, but who, who knows? N never say never, maybe someday. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um, Victoria, this has been such a pleasure. So 
In closing, any comments for our listeners? We've talked on some of them. I mean, putting yourself first in this, in your journey from a career perspective, about continuing to invest in yourself and skills as they're changing so quickly um, in the work world to, you know, building a really strong personal brand so people know what you, not just what you do, but who you are as an individual and the values you have and are bringing your network and then learning to create these boundaries. So you might call that that self-interest, but the things you that don't, I, I say the things that don't bring me joy, I don't do, or or sadly, my, my laundry needs to still get done. Um, you know, learn how to, you know, outsource. In this case, my husband does it. Um, but cleaning the home, I don't enjoy doing, and I have someone to do that. So performance, brand, network, and creating boundaries would be, you know, kind of the lasting things I'd leave uh, as advice to your audience. It's such an interesting conversation. I can go for another hour. <laughs> But I know you need to be somewhere exciting. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate all the great advice. Thanks for having me.